0: This is the Washington State Indivisible podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, our town hall with Congresswoman Marilyn. Stewart rickland she was elected in 2020 to represent the 10th congressional district and she joins us for a wide-ranging conversation about the two infrastructure packages currently making their way through congress and what's in each of them for washington and also about how we can find progressive ways to pay for them we also discuss action on the climate crisis voting rights defense spending and so much more that is next
1: So, today we are honored to have Congresswoman Marilyn Strickland with us. She was elected in 2020 to represent the 10th CD, a district that includes Olympia, much of Tacoma, and Joint Base Lewis McCord. She served as the 38th mayor of Tacoma from 2010 to 2018. She's the first member of the United States Congress of both Korean and African American heritage, and the first African American member elected from Washington state. Strickland is also one of the first three Korean-American women elected to Congress. She currently sits on both the House Armed Services Committee as well as the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, and is Vice Chair of the Subcommittee on Railroads, Pipelines, and Hazardous Materials. She's also a member of the New Democrat Coalition. And with that, I'll turn things over to Stephen.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, Congresswoman Strickland, it is such a pleasure to have you on the program today. How are you?
1: I'm doing fine. You know what, I'm okay. Okay. I'm doing okay. When people ask that question, I'm going to be very honest. I'm doing okay.
0: <laughs> you know, we're kind of grading reality on a curve these days, right? Right. So, yeah, a good C plus kind of equals like an A minus these days. Well, listen, yeah. I-, I want to first begin by thanking you for so many things that you've gotten accomplished in your first 200 days. You helped secure $333 million, uh, for CD10 in the American Rescue Plan. You passed two bills, the Puget SOS, sound, uh, the SOS Act, the uh, Build More Housing Near Transit Act. You secured committee passage of over 20 amendments to this year's NDAA benefiting service members and you led freshman members of the pro-choice caucus to support reproductive health in the U.S. and the world. And so thank you for all that. It's a lot. I'll just ask you to begin uh, sharing some of your thoughts and reflections on your first term in Congress. It's certainly been a, a very eventful time.
1: It really has. Well, first of all, thank you Indivisible for hosting me. It's my honor to be here. I know that we originally had hoped to do this in person, but the Delta variant has taken over. So out of an abundance of caution and safety for everyone's health, we're just doing it this way. And to those of you who are vaccinated and masking up, thank you so much for doing your part to keep everyone safe. The, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been 250 days since I've been in Congress. And I remember after I was, I won my election in November, before Thanksgiving, you literally go to Washington, D.C., and you start your freshman orientation. I'm going to share this with you because I think sometimes we'll get into policy stuff, but I want to share with you my experience as a freshman in Congress. Okay. And when I was elected, you know, Denny asked, said to me, he goes, you have to do th- three things immediately. Find an apartment, find a chief of staff, and start your campaign for the committee assignments that you want. So, I took his very sage advice and I got good committee assignments. I have a fantastic chief of staff. And I found an apartment. I live in a place that we jokingly call the dorm because about 20 other members of the Democratic caucus live there. Um, With that said, I was sworn in on January 3rd. There was an insurrection on the 6th. The following Wednesday, we filed articles of impeachment. And the following Wednesday, we had the peaceful transfer of power. And President Joe Biden was sworn in with Vice President Kamala Harris. Still in the throes of a pandemic, still an economic crisis. I'm so grateful to my team for helping me get these amendments and bills passed because you're only as good as the team that you have supporting you in Washington, D.C. and here at home. So I want to make sure I acknowledge them and thank them for helping me be a good member of Congress. But, you know, eventful is probably the word I would use. I don't think any of us imagined that you were going to see people attack the Capitol and literally try to overturn a legitimate election. And I will tell you that if the Democrats lose this narrow majority, that can happen all over again. So, so much is at stake right now with voting rights, with showing up in local races and state legislative races and doing what we can. But it's been great, it's been fun, it's been challenging. And at the same time, we're actually getting a lot accomplished and in many ways, COVID has highlighted some of the things we should have done a long time ago. So we're working on the Build Back Better agenda AND THAT IS AN INFRASTRUCTURE PACKAGE, WHAT I CALL TRADITIONAL INFRASTRUCTURE, ALONG WITH WHAT I'M CALLING THE CAREGIVING INFRASTRUCTURE. TRADITIONAL INFRASTRUCTURE, ROADS, BRIDGES, TRANSIT, SEWER SYSTEMS, ALL THE SEXY STUFF, RIGHT? AND THEN THERE'S A CAREGIVING INFRASTRUCTURE WHICH ACKNOWLEDGES THAT UNTIL WE ADDRESS CAREGIVING IN THIS COUNTRY, FOR THOSE WHO CARE FOR OUR ELDEST AND THOSE WHO CARE FOR OUR YOUNGEST, WE'RE NOT GOING TO HAVE AN EQUITABLE RECOVERY BECAUSE WOMEN TEND TO BEAR THE BRUNT OF THOSE responsibilities and 2 million women so far have dropped out of the workforce. So I'm anxious to get on the reconciliation package, to get the bipartisan package passed, and then just making sure that you know we're not losing sight of the fact that we are in control right now as Democrats. We control all chambers, but I will say that we can pass everything we want in the House, but if the Senate is still a graveyard and all of our fortunes depend on one person, we're not doing our job. So we need to elect more Democrats and expand that Senate majority. That is crucial. And I'm going to keep harping on voting rights, because that is the infrastructure of our democracy. And if we do not do everything to defend and protect it, all the things that we want to get done, we're going to lose two decades of progress. So I will stop right there and I'll let you get to some of the questions, Stephen.
0: Well, it is quite extraordinary because you basically read down a laundry list of everything that I would <laughs> like to discuss with you today. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a perfect entree. Uh, let's, let's just jump right into some specifics okay. uh, on infrastructure. So, you know, sure. we know that these are two packages, the bipartisan infrastructure package and the reconciliation bill, which I know you're currently yeah. uh, about to be very hard at work on. So as you yeah. mentioned, the, the bipartisan infrastructure package includes the things like hard and infrastructure, roads, bridges, broadband. This is about a trillion dollars. You yeah. as a member of the Transportation Committee with subcommittee leadership, it's very much in your wheelhouse. I'll just ask you briefly, are there some very specific places that you would like to see funds directed here in the state of Washington?
1: Yeah, you know, um, during my time as mayor, I served on two regional transit boards. I was on the board of Sound Transit as vice chair, and then I was the chair of Pierce Transit. And... If I could spend money on anything, it would be mass transit, more buses, more HOV lanes, more bus rapid transit, more light rail, and definitely electrified high-speed rail. And I say that because we live in a growing region and more people are moving here every week. And as we look at the number of people here, the transportation challenges we have, that is completely related to the housing crisis that we have. We have to build more housing near transit we have to be willing to upzone so that we can have types of housing for everyone so if i can invest in one thing specifically with with infrastructure it would be you just can't build enough transit as far as i'm concerned <laughs>
0: I, you know, I, I think that's probably a welcome message for a lot of people listening right now because we know there is a huge influx of people coming to the Pacific Northwest for myriad reasons, uh, not least of which is there's water here. There seems to right. be a, a shortage of water in, in places like California, and this is the sort of infrastructure that we're going to need to build here to be able to maintain that. Um, I'll shift over and talk about the bigger bill now, and that is the the, the okay. reconciliation package. Now, this is yeah. the $3.5 trillion budget, budget resolution. This is spread out over 10 years years with an average of $350 billion a year. And this, as you say, is the caregiving and human services infrastructure package. So child care, housing, climate change, education. Um, as I say, you know, and we were talking about this before we began, House committees are already working on what is going to make it into this final bill. So with that in mind, I will just ask you personally, what are just a few of your very top priorities for this this package?
1: YOU KNOW, I SPOKE ABOUT IT EARLIER DURING MY EARLY REMARKS ABOUT THE CAREGIVING INFRASTRUCTURE. AND I SAY THAT COMING BACK TO THE DATA POINT OF 2 MILLION WOMEN HAVE DROPPED OUT OF THE WORKFORCE. AND, you know, YOU KNOW, IF YOU READ THE NEWS, YOU HEAR STORIES ABOUT PEOPLE NOT BEING ABLE TO FIND WORKERS TO COME BACK TO HOSPITALITY, TO DIFFERENT, YOU KNOW, TO DIFFERENT types OF EMPLOYMENT. THERE ARE HOTELS I'VE HEARD THAT CAN'T FIND ENOUGH STAFF. AND PEOPLE WILL SAY, WELL, IT'S BECAUSE OF THOSE UNEMPLOYMENT BENEFITS. For a lot of people, it is a conversation about caregiving, and they're having to make a choice between caring for their loved ones or deciding to go back to work. And you know, if we do not address that part of it, then we're not going to have an equitable recovery. Every other developed nation in the world has some type of national child care policy. And it's time for us to join the rest of the world to be competitive, but to ensure, again, that this recovery is equitable. And I want to make sure I point something out here, too. because. Equity is the lens through which I'm doing this, especially because people who work in caregiving tend to be women, tend to be minorities, and tend to be immigrants. So if we want to make sure that this recovery is inclusive, caregiving is such a foundation in in all of that. And that's so vitally important, I think, to all of us. We're all going to need care at some point, and we've all given care. And you have some people who are caregiving for their youngest and their eldest at the same time. So it's just such an essential part of our future, and we need to have a national policy to address it.
0: You are speaking Indivisible's language. Uh, The equity lens is something that we try to see every uh, policy uh, aspect through. I just want to take a a quick moment and welcome two key audience members, Patty Rose, Secretary Treasurer of the Pierce County Central Labor Council, AFL-CIO, and also a Quad Burfecht, First VP, Seattle King County, NAACP. Welcome to both of you. Um, Another one of Indivisible's priorities is making the expanded and enhanced child tax credit permanent. Uh, I believe this is also a a priority of the New Democratic Coalition, New Democrat Coalition, rather, uh, which you are a member, as Kat mentioned. Right now, it is slated to be extended three to five years. You said in a recent interview, something very surprising, that uh, some 70% of families in the 10th are eligible for this. So how do we make sure that this stays in the final bill?
1: Well, there there are two parts to this. They are, you know, 70% of families in our district are absolutely eligible for it. AND A LOT OF PEOPLE STILL DON'T KNOW, AND SO WE WANT TO MAKE SURE, NUMBER ONE, THAT WE GET THE WORD OUT. AND UNFORTUNATELY, THERE ARE PEOPLE WHO ARE NOT SECURELY BANKED. AND SO WE HAVE TO MAKE SURE THAT WE ARE FINDING A WAY TO MAKE THEM AWARE OF THIS. THE OTHER THING THAT'S IMPORTANT, TOO, IS you know, IF WE LOOK AT THE EFFECT THAT THIS HAS HAD, IT HAS HELPED LIFT FAMILIES OUT OF POVERTY. AND SO I BELIEVE THAT IF WE'RE ABLE TO MAKE THIS PERMANENT, IT CAN JUST COMPLETELY CHANGE THE ECONOMIC FORTUNES OF SO MANY FAMILIES. AND IN MANY WAYS, THIS IS OUR EXPERIMENT WITH UNIVERSAL BASIC INCOME, AND SO THERE ARE TWO THINGS WE CAN DO HERE THAT ARE GOING TO HAVE A PROFOUND IMPACT, AND YOU KNOW THIS, YOU KNOW, WHEN CHILDREN ARE FROM FAMILIES THAT ARE MORE STABLE AND HAVE THEIR BASIC NEEDS MET, THEY'RE GOING TO DO BETTER IN SCHOOL. AND, YOU KNOW, MY HUSBAND IS A HIGH SCHOOL PRINCIPAL, AND AFTER TWO DAYS, YOU KNOW, BECAUSE OF THE PANDEMIC, THEY ARE HAVING CHALLENGES BECAUSE YOU HAVE YOUNG PEOPLE WHO HAVE NOT BEEN SOCIALIZED FOR A LONG TIME, AND THEY'RE JUST HAVING TROUBLE GETTING BACK INTO, the groove of being a student again, but I am a big fan of doing what we can to support families with children, and I would like to see that ch- child tax credit become permanent. And again, it's a form of universal basic income.
0: Completely agreed. Uh, and I will also mention that Indivisible is also pushing for universal child care, paid leave, home and community based care. So we're all on the same page uh, there. I want to get your thoughts on an op-ed that was released by the new Dems. So your colleague, Representative Ron Kind of Wisconsin, uh, said, quote, we need to limit the number of programs included in the legislation in order to fund them properly and ensure their stability well into the future. I'll just ask you, do you agree with that? And if so, uh, are there programs that you would cut?
1: Yeah, you know, that is just the... WORST QUESTION TO ASK SOMEONE BECAUSE YOU'RE GOING TO HAVE TO CHOOSE. AND, YOU KNOW, AS WE'RE LOOKING AT HOW WE'RE GOING TO PAY FOR THESE THINGS, RON HAS A GOOD POINT BECAUSE YOU WOULD RATHER FUND PROGRAMS SUSTAINABLY AND SUBSTANTIVELY AND PROVIDE PEOPLE WITH CERTAINTY INSTEAD OF TRYING TO WHAT I CALL THE PEANUT BUTTER APPROACH, WHERE EVERYONE GETS A LITTLE SOMETHING, BUT IT'S VERY, VERY UNSTABLE. Um, THE QUESTION IS, YOU KNOW, WE HAVEN'T – I HAVE NOT THOUGHT PERSONALLY ABOUT, YOU KNOW, WHAT IS IT THAT I'M WILLING NOT TO DO ANYMORE? THERE HAVE BEEN QUESTIONS, FOR EXAMPLE, ABOUT HAVING INCOME thresholds for who gets access to childcare. There have been conversations about, you know, what do we need more urgently versus, you know, what are something that's a, what's something that's a nice to have. And so, you know, this is really what I call the nuance of policymaking, right? You know, we have finite resources. We have needs that will always, always outstrip, you know, the resources we have. And what policies are we going to implement? And what are we willing to invest in to help the most people and do the greatest good? And so I don't have a list here of what I'm going to sacrifice because of course we want it all. But Ron Kind makes a really good point about do something that's sustainable, that's impactful, that's going to give as many families as possible certainty.
0: Well, and this is something that I'm going to kind of loop back to when we talk about how this all gets paid for, but I want to ask about the climate component of this because another of Indivisible's reconciliation priorities is the climate, uh, especially including the clean energy standard, which would move uh, the power grid to 100% clean energy by 2050. I'm assuming that this is something that you support, and so I'll just ask you how and where you see this transition happening here in Washington.
1: Yeah, so through the reconciliation package, I want to remind people that the reconciliation is a budgeting tool. And so, you know, we, we've had conversations in our caucus about policies we want to move forward, but that isn't necessarily related to a budgeting tool, which is part of reconciliation. But, you know, as we think about this move to, you know, 100% renewable energy, you know, we have to make it easier for us as consumers to make better decisions about how we use energy. And that's everything from how we use transportation. To the choices we make as consumers, to what's accessible, and also being equitable about it, and understanding that you know, if we have housing that is so scarce and so and so expensive that people of lower incomes have to move far away with no transit service, we're forcing them to get into a car and have to drive. And so again, the nexus between housing and transportation and climate change is so incredibly important. And so I think there's a way to do it. You know, another conversation that came up when we were during the campaign is you know are we open to all forms of energy and i think that you know we have to make our decisions based on science and you know there have been conversations about you know do you support nuclear energy do you support taking down dams What do you think about hydroelectric is it is it really as sustainable as we say it is and so i just believe that we have to be willing to have a deep dive and bring all the energy people to the table and say look we're going to decarbonize this economy our future and our lives depend on it we're underwater we're on fire and we have to do something urgently. And it has to be an international act as well because we can do all the things we want here in Washington state and the United States, but China has to come on board, India has to come on board, and the EU has to come on board. And you know, to be honest with you, the EU is doing a good job already, sure. but this has to be an international effort. And that's why I'm glad that President Biden got back into the Paris Climate Accord.
0: Oh, absolutely, I, I would uh, 100% agree with that. And I also think that the rest of the world looks to us as a global leader yes. on things like climate. And so what we do in Washington, your Washington right now, uh, absolutely matters. You know, you talk about this being a budgeting issue, and certainly this is a question for the, the, the Senate parliamentarian in terms of what what ultimately constitutes a budgeting issue. But but I'll okay. ask you maybe a, a more general question here. Okay. Um, so the new Dems are calling to, quote, go big on climate and maximize emissions reductions. So given everything yeah. we've just talked about here, I'll just ask you, because we've all read the UNIPCC report, we know just how dire yeah. the situation is. Climate change is here, and 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 something needs to happen yesterday. What does going big on climate look like to you personally?
1: Going big on climate to me means making the ginormous investments in infrastructure that we have to make to change things. And you know, when we talk about climate change is here, all we have to do is look at Mount Rainier. That's our that's Exhibit A right there. And so for me, it is. Upgrading our energy infrastructure so that we can accommodate tens of thousands of more electric vehicles. You know, I've had meetings with car manufacturers. They want to sell EVs in the United States. Less than 2% of the cars they sell are electric vehicles. We are way behind in the US. And you shouldn't have to have a two car garage to have an electric vehicle. And so people need to have faith in the system that the batteries are going to last a long yeah. time, but moving to EVs, moving to mass transit. And here's another thing that isn't related to necessarily an infrastructure investment, but WE HAVE TO LOOK AT GEOGRAPHIC EQUITY OF WHERE WE CITE HIGH-WAGE JOBS, BECAUSE EVERYONE SHOULDN'T HAVE TO GO TO A MAJOR CITY TO GET ACCESS TO A JOB THAT PAYS WELL. AND SO, YOU KNOW, AS WE LOOK AT WHAT I'M CALLING THE REARRANGING OF THE chess, the chessboard, YOU KNOW, ARE WE ABLE TO PUT SOME HIGH-WAGE JOBS a COUPLE THOUSAND IN TACOMA, A COUPLE THOUSAND IN OLYMPIA THAT ARE PRIVATE SECTOR AND JUST REALLY SPREADING IT OUT SO THAT WE'RE KEEPING PEOPLE OFF THE ROAD AND NOT HAVING TO HAVE THEM COMMUTE TO MAKE THEIR LIVELIHOODS, YOU KNOW, TO HAVE, to have A SECURE LIVELIHOOD. SO WHERE WE CITE JOBS, BUILDING MORE HOUSING NEAR TRANSIT, MAKING THOSE INVESTMENTS IN INFRASTRUCTURE, AND REALLY LOOKING AT OUR POWER GRID TO SAY, IF WE SUDDENLY sold hundreds of thousands of more electric vehicles what's that going to do to our power supply are we ready to even handle that so i would say that's what going big is to me and again it's the willingness to make these investments i hate the term pilot program because it Mm. means you're dipping your toe in but if you're going to go go big because right now with this thin majority we have we don't know what's going to happen in 22 i try to be optimistic but if we lose a majority we're going to be in a policy desert for a decade or two And so now is the time to act. We have this 18 month window, we need to go big.
0: I am so glad to hear you say that because I know that that is what is exactly on the mind of so many Indivisibles listening and watching right now is that the the, the clock is ticking right now and yep. we have an opportunity to make a generational change here right now. Uh, I think a lot of people are, are looking at some of the things that are on the table and seeing the biggest potential public investment um, maybe since the 60, 60s, uh, possibly even the 1930s. It's very transformational. Um, and, and as I said, I do want to talk about the way that this is paid for, so Indivisible is called for it to be paid for largely by revenue from multinational corporations, big pharma, individuals making over $400,000 a year. And something that President Biden said uh, really stuck with me uh, the other day when speaking, we were just, you know, as as I was referencing the the transformative nature of this, he said his goal for the bill is to, quote, build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, not just the top down, which is something that we've seen, obviously, for the last 40 years. And I think it's our I I think it's at this point inarguable that that approach doesn't work. Do you agree with the president on that goal?
1: Absolutely. And here's why, you know, I use my family as an example. I grew up in a military family and my father served for over 20 years. We lived in a modest house in South Tacoma, but we had food on the table. My parents owned their house and we were comfortable and we had access to health care. That is not true for too many people. And so, as we look at what has changed, like you know, my parents bought their house for seventeen thousand dollars in nineteen sixty-eight. That house was paid for before I got out of high school. My parents had a secure retirement, and that story is true for a lot of my friends I grew up with, whose parents were or were not in the military. That's not the reality anymore. And so, we have to look at some of these tax systems that are upside down that hurt the middle class and people who are not making enough money, and think about what we need to do and make it more equitable. And I tell folks that. The best thing that we can do for the economy, the best thing that we can do for business is to strengthen people and families and give them economic security. Because we talk about how to pay for things, but the dividends that people are going to have, you know, as they are financially secure, as their are consumers, those revenues are going to come back into government, into local government, state government, and federal government.
0: And a lot of those things, I think, can be ideally addressed through jobs and job creation and things like that that are part of the reconciliation bill. But in terms of the way that we raise revenue, I'd love to get your thoughts on just two mechanisms. Uh, The president is calling to increase capital gains to a maximum of 39.6 percent. And I'll just uh, hasten to add that this applies to less than one percent of taxpayers. And mm-hmm. that he is also calling to increase the corporate tax rate to 28%. Right. And, and I will note that it was 35% before the Trump tax cuts. Do you support right. both of these measures?
1: I do. And I think they're very reasonable. And, you know, going from 21 to 28%, which is lower than it was during the Obama period, is reasonable. It's a good compromise. And again, you know, I, I tell folks that if we're willing to pay for these programs the long term benefit to the entire economy is going to be good. And that's going to be good for businesses as well. And that's businesses of all sizes. And so there's no downside to making those investments. I will tell you this, though, you know, and we had a conversation before we came live about messaging, right? Yep. And, you know, whenever there's a conversation about taxes, it's always, it, it always turns into, you know, tax them, we don't like them. And then it's like, well, they're all they are is tax and spend Democrats, right. and we sometimes forget to remind people or to frame it as we need to pay for this, and here's how pay, and here's how these programs are going to benefit our community, and if we're willing to do the 28% marginal tax rate, if we're willing to do some things like this, then we can help pay for these things. We ha- sometimes we don't know how to frame the conversation, and for some people, you know this when they hear that even the folks, even the one percent who'll be affected by these tax increases what comes up well it's going to start to open the door and then it's going to come down to everyone else and next thing you know everyone's going to get taxed and so we have to be more thoughtful about messaging but always lead with what is it are we tra- what are we trying to accomplish right how does that benefit the greater good and why does paying for it this way actually have a stronger return on investment in the long run i just think sometimes with messaging we're not as good as we could
0: be. Well, as I said when we began, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, I think that you know we talk, we, we often speak in nuance uh, on the democratic slash progressive side of things, uh, which sometimes put us puts us at a, a bit of a disadvantage. So I, I appreciate you laying all of that out. Um, I, I want to shift over and talk about something that is very, very, very top of mind for pretty much everybody uh, in indivisible right now, and you have already, uh, you know, you've referenced this uh, in our in your opening remarks. Uh, and that is voting rights. So I know that you were a co-sponsor of the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Many of us see this as a fight for the future of our democracy. I will just ask you, if I may, uh, from the perspective okay. of the first Black representative from Washington ever, what does all this mean to you personally?
1: You know, it's interesting. So, you know, when you talk about something that is named after John Lewis, or when you talk about H.R. 1, you know, you cannot help but have a mental image of him crossing the the bridge. And you know for me it's personal because I think about my father. I think about the fact that my father who was from rural Georgia joined the army when it was segregated. I think about the fights that he had, the fights that my family members had and just the legacy that I inherit just by even being a viable candidate and sitting in Congress right now as a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. So I think for a lot of us whose families HAVE A HISTORY OF BEING VICTIMS OF DISCRIMINATION, IT'S VERY, VERY PERSONAL. BUT I ALSO WANT TO MAKE SURE THAT I REMIND EVERYONE THAT, YES, THIS IS ABOUT CIVIL RIGHTS HISTORY AND A NAMESAKE WHO WE LOVE AND ADORE AND MISS, BUT IT'S ALSO ABOUT THE FUNDAMENTALS OF OUR DEMOCRACY. AND HR1 DOES A LOT OF THINGS, YOU KNOW, IT MAKES IT EASIER TO VOTE. It makes sure that we're able to have vote by mail and access to the ballot. It increases election security. You know, it it gets rid of the dark money where, you know, where we don't know where it's coming from. You know, and here's what I say about the the dark money part of it. It's like, you know you have to at least reveal who's donating at a minimum so people can make an informed choice. And there's a lot of money all over politics from all places, but it can't be dark. It's like shine the light on it so people know exactly who's donating to which packs and what's going on. That's really important. And then also too, it just talks about, you know, the branches of government and how we're making sure that we are engaging and ethical behavior, and holding people accountable, and not having people benefit from being in this office. So, you know, I do believe that HR1 is very strong. HR4, I'm getting a little technical and wonky, <clears throat> Excuse me, technical and wonky here. Um, HR4 is really about the idea of pre-clearance, and pre-clearance is the concept that if a state wants to change voting rights laws they have to get pre-clearance from the federal government and this is because you have a rash of states across the nation now who have a history of discrimination who have a history of voter suppression engaging in the same behavior if they have to go to the federal government to get pre-clearance first then it provides a safety mechanism and keeps them from doing it but you know hr4 and hr1 are vital to the future of our democracy and i was just on a call the democratic caucus and we were talking about this very topic
0: I mean, what's and everything that you say is absolutely right. What what I think is discomforting about H.R. 4 in particular is the fact that with many of these states, the horse has left the barn. And so, you know, the even with the passage of a bill like uh, the John Lewis bill, there would need to be extra uh, legislation in order to address the damage that has already been done, um, which is a larger conversation. But I will just ask you this. You know, this is obvious. This is all in the hands of the Senate now. These two bills have been passed mm-hmm. by the House. Yep. Um, we've seen a number of uh, members be very vocal about this, including you. And thank you for that. I follow you on Twitter. I, I see the, 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 you know, the things that you talk about and the things that you call attention to around this issue. I'll just ask you, how do you feel like members of Congress, like yourself, can really keep this issue front and center? And then more importantly, how can we as Indivisibles partner with you and help?
1: You know, I mean, I will come back to, you know, what I said earlier, and this is unfortunately the reality. Like, you know, we have senators who represent states that are smaller than some of our districts. And so <laughs> that, that's not an equitable system. West,
0: West Virginia, it's, for example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was going to name any names,
1: but yes. <laughs> and so, you know, so again, it is so incredibly important for us as Democrats to be very thoughtful and strategic about where in, we're investing our time, our operations, and our volunteerism to elect people who can win. We need to increase that Senate majority. Val Demings has a good shot of beating Marco Rubio. We have Tim Ryan has a good shot at winning in Ohio. I mean, so we have some strong candidates who have a good shot at winning, but we have to put our effort behind them and not just get scattered all over the place and spend money in places where we just don't have a chance to win. And this is not denigrating anyone who runs for office because we should all be able to run if we want to, but we have got to be strategic and intentional. So I would say that's the most important thing to do. WE PASS THESE BILLS IN THE HOUSE AND THEY GO TO A GRAVEYARD IN THE SENATE BECAUSE OUR FORTUNES DEPEND ON ONE PERSON OR TWO PEOPLE. THAT'S NOT DEMOCRATIC. THAT IS NOT DEMOCRACY. I'D SAY THE OTHER THING WE NEED TO DO, TOO, WITH VOTING RIGHTS IS WITH SO MUCH GOING ON BETWEEN getting GETTING PEOPLE VACCINATED, THE NEW MANDATES, THE ECONOMIC CRISIS, IT FEELS LIKE YOU'RE STANDING ON THE BEACH AND THE WAVES JUST NEVER ABATE.
0: And we just have to find a (laughs) way (laughs) to make sure
1: that we put this at the top of the list. And there's so many things that belong at the top of the list, but I will say this again, that Senate majority not getting larger and the erosion of voting rights, if we do not deal with those two, first and foremost, front and center, everything that we hope for is not gonna happen. And again, if we lose the majority, we're going to go backwards in a very aggressive way. And again, there can be a presidential election and there can be a majority of people who don't like the outcome and they will pull exactly what they tried to pull on January 6th.
0: So that is the narration of what goes through my head when I'm awake at 3 a.m., what you just said. And I know I'm not alone with this. Um, I want to loop back just very briefly and ask you an enforcement question, Uh, and this relates to uh, what you were talking about with H.R. 4. So Indivisible is very strongly in favor of expanding funding for the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division to investigate voting rights violations. This is one way that the executive branch can actually step into this. Uh, Am I safe in assuming that you support this funding? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Okay, good. And then also, I just wanted to call something else out that you did uh, on the topic of civil rights uh, division. You introduced a bill called the Enhancing Oversight to End Discrimination in Policing Act. Thank you for that. Do you see any roadblocks to getting funding for this? And again, how can we help you on that?
1: Yeah. So um, that was something that I introduced with Senator Elizabeth Warren and, you know, Cory Booker and Tim Scott are the folks in the Senate who are running point on police reform. So they're doing a version of the George George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and my colleague Karen Bass has been very instrumental in that. So the, the bill that um, Senator Warren and I introduced, we hope that that is part of a long-term police justice bill that comes forward. And it asks the Department of Justice to be funded at a level where they can investigate THESE ASSERTIONS OF DISCRIMINATION IN POLICING, HOLD PEOPLE ACCOUNTABLE, AND CREATE A DATABASE AS WELL. BECAUSE WHAT HAPPENS UNFORTUNATELY IS THAT YOU HAVE POLICE OFFICERS WHO ENGAGE IN EGREGIOUS BEHAVIOR AND THEN THEY JUST GET A JOB IN ANOTHER DEPARTMENT. AND I WANT TO START BY REALLY RECLAIMING SOMETHING. AS DEMOCRATS, I THINK SOMETIMES THAT WE SURRENDER OR WE cede CERTAIN POSITIONS. AS DEMOCRATS, WE WANT A NATION THAT IS SAFE, THAT IS JUST, AND THAT IS SECURE. And I refuse to cede faith, family, or patriotism to a party that is often hypocritical. And I don't say this because I believe that every Republican is a bad person. I mean, I have Republicans who are in my district who I've worked with for a long time as mayor. But you have people dominating a party who are just engaging in egregious behavior. But I think as Democrats, we need to reclaim that message. The economy does better when we are in charge. We are people of faith we value families of all kinds. So we really are the party of family values. And we love this country as much as anyone else does, even though it has faults and we speak up against it. But I think we have to kind of get back to, we want a country that is safe, just, and secure. And every policy decision that we have discussed today falls into one of those buckets. Climate change is a safety and security issue. Police reform is a safety and security issue. It's a criminal, it's a justice issue. So if we think about how we frame that conversation, Every policy that we want to come forward falls into one of those buckets.
0: Are you speaking with the DNC on messaging? Because you absolutely should be. I think everything that you're saying right now is so absolutely uh, right on the money. So as Kat mentioned, you are a member of the House Armed Services Committee, and we had Mm -hmm. a number of questions about the defense budget. And you know, I I was thinking about this as I was preparing this question, and I was doing a little research, and this year's Department of National Intelligence Threat Assessment report says that climate change and global pandemics are threats on par with China and Russia, and then a number of analysts also say that they are far more concerned with domestic terrorism than international terrorism. So the question that comes to my mind is do you feel like the defense budget correctly reflects our needs as a nation right now?
1: You know, that's a really good question. And I say that because whenever we talk about the defense budget, it tends to go in two directions. It talks about the size of it, and then it talks about what we're prioritizing. And if I may just jump in, I
0: will just say, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but I will just for context add that uh, the the fiscal year 2022 top line Mm -hmm. budget is $744 billion. So.
1: Yep, yep. And that was the budget that the president submitted. And so um, let me talk about this. So first of all, Secretary of Defense um, Lloyd declared climate change a national security issue and a global security issue. So the Department of Defense is on board with this. They understand what this means. And I serve on the military personnel and readiness committees, which means I'm focusing on the people who serve. So as an example, when we were doing markup for NDAA, which is the national defense budget, there was a proposal that came from the Senate to increase the budget by $26 billion. Um, THE THREE MEMBERS OF WASHINGTON STATE, on um, THAT COMMITTEE VOTED AGAINST IT. CHAIRMAN SMITH DID, RICK LARSON DID, AND I DID. AND IT'S NOT BECAUSE I DISAGREE WITH $26 BILLION, BUT I WANT TO SEE THAT SPENT ON MORE HOUSING FOR FAMILIES ON POST. I WANT TO SEE THAT SPENT ON HEALTH CARE FOR PEOPLE WHO SERVE IN THE NATIONAL GUARD. I WANT TO SEE THINGS THAT ARE SPENT TO ACTUALLY HELP SUPPORT FAMILIES. IF YOU'RE IN THE MILITARY AND YOU'RE A YOUNG PERSON SERVING, IT'S LIKE YOU SHOULDN'T BE ON FOOD STAMPS. And so there are things that go on with those who serve who are not being tri- – who are not getting their basic needs met. And so for me, it's not necessarily the amount. It's really how are we deploying that money. Technology is different now with how we engage around the world. And yes, we need people on the ground, but we can use technology in very different ways. And cybersecurity is an ongoing threat every minute of every day. So for me, it's not necessarily what the top-line number is. It's being accountable, using our resources wisely, and making sufficient investments in the people who serve. I think that is so incredibly important.
0: And I do want to highlight that in just a moment, but I'm going to ask another question that I know you're not going to like because you you didn't like it when I was referring, when I asked the question regarding uh, what Ron Kind had said. But, you know, even in my discussions with uh, the uh, Hask chair, Adam Smith, the House Mm Armed Services Committee, Adam Adam Smith, he even takes issue with exorbitant spending on programs like the F-35. So I'll just ask you, are there areas that you could see streamlining in the DEFENSE BUDGET.
1: YEAH, I MEAN, YOU KNOW, WHEN YOU LOOK AT THESE GIANT EXPENSIVE PIECES OF EQUIPMENT AND THE AMOUNT OF TIME IT TAKES TO BUILD THEM, YOU KNOW, WE'RE NOT BEING AS EFFICIENT AS WE COULD BE. AND I WILL TELL YOU THAT, YOU KNOW, THE THING YOU LEARN ABOUT FEDERAL GOVERNMENT IS THAT it IT IS A GIANT BUREAUCRATIC MACHINE. AND SO WE HAVE TO LOOK VERY CAREFULLY. And just hold everyone accountable. I mean, you know, when I think about manufacturing something like an F-35, I mean, think about the supply chain involved, the engineering involved, the testing involved. So how is that process going? And what, what mistakes are being made? Why do we keep having to start over and press reset? I mean, that's a waste of money. And again, I'd rather see that money go into supporting families and getting their basic need met, building more housing on base than to keep spending money on some of these some of this equipment that isn't necessarily being done efficiently or in a way that is accountable as it should be. So that is a completely legitimate concern. Absolutely it is.
0: So you have mentioned, uh, and I have also mentioned a couple times, the work that you do on behalf of service members and veterans. And I just want to highlight this. Um, as I mentioned at the top, you secured over 20 amendments that would fund things like health care, dental care, homelessness prevention for service members and vets. These are the sorts of things, I'm, sorry, I'm I'm a little outraged here. These are the sorts of things that you think would already be funded. Were you surprised right? that they weren't? And what explanation were you given as to why they weren't?
1: You know, um, one of the explanations I've heard is that, you know, sometimes a choice has to be made between funding some of these things and having updated equipment that people need to use. I've heard people say that, you know, different regions are growing at different rates AND, YOU KNOW, WE'RE SORRY THAT HOUSING IS SO EXPENSIVE HERE, BUT THERE'S A BASE HOUSING ALLOWANCE. AND ONE OF THE QUESTIONS I ASKED IS, YEAH, BUT IT'S DIFFERENT BY EVERY REGION. SO SHOULDN'T WE CALIBRATE IT BASED ON WHERE someone's STATIONED SO THAT A FAMILY DOESN'T HAVE TO SPEND SIX MONTHS IN TEMPORARY HOUSING OR HAVE NOWHERE TO LIVE WITH THEY WANT TO LIVE ON POST? AND SO I WAS SURPRISED TOO. AND, YOU KNOW, I'VE I've HEARD FOR YEARS THAT THERE ARE YOUNG MEMBERS OF THE MILITARY WHO ARE ON FOOD STAMPS. I MEAN, THAT IS INSANE. IF YOU DO THE MATH, I THINK THEIR STARTING SALARY IS $9.35 AN hour. Hmm. And so, I just think that there are things that we need to do to take care of people because we can purchase all the equipment we want, but if we do not take care of the families and the people who are serving, they're not going to be ready to do their jobs. And so, I just want to make sure that we're doing things that are that are really focusing on the people. And then, as you know, you know, we had some lively debates about addressing extremism. Um, there have been conversations coming up about this whole idea of critical race theory and the service academies. And so. It is definitely a far ranging committee where we talk about all kinds of things.
0: We have a question about extremism in in the military, and so I would would just put a pin in that. And in fact, now let's I think we should shift over to audience questions. Now we have about 20 minutes left. Um, and I want to to start with a question from Julie. Uh, She says, you are a co-sponsor of H.R. 3, the health care bill that would, among other things, allow the Secretary of HHS to negotiate lower drug prices, but you were also a signatory to a letter to Speaker Pelosi expressing concern about aspects of H.R. 3. Your constituents are confused. Do you or do you not Support the government negotiating lower drug prices for your constituents?
1: Well, first of all, the letter did not mention HR 3. And what the letter said was that we need to make sure. THAT WHEN WE LOOK AT NEGOTIATING DRUG PRICES, THAT WE ARE DOING SOMETHING THAT IS GOING TO INCLUDE BOTH CHAMBERS, BOTH THE HOUSE AND THE SENATE, AND IS GOING TO BE BIPARTISAN. AND THE REASON WE SAID THAT, MY COLLEAGUE, JAKE Auchincloss WAS THE ONE WHO ACTUALLY TALKED ABOUT THIS letter WITH ME, AND HE SAID THAT WHAT IS BEING PROPOSED RIGHT NOW ISN'T NECESSARILY GOING TO REDUCE DRUG COSTS FOR AS MANY PEOPLE AS POSSIBLE. SO LET'S BRING EVERYONE TO THE TABLE, LET'S HAVE AN HONEST CONVERSATION, AND LET'S TALK ABOUT what's going, to, WHAT IT'S GOING TO TAKE TO ACTUALLY PASS SOMETHING TO REDUCE THE DRUG PRICES. I am a supporter of H.R. 3. I support having Medicaid and Medicare negotiate these prices, but at the same time, we want to make sure that we are covering as many people as possible and that we are able to get something done. The last thing I want to see happen is that the House passes H.R. 3, it dies in the Senate, and here we are in the 118th Congress, and nothing has changed for the price of pharmaceuticals for so many people who pay way too much out of pocket.
0: Just as a follow up, you say you want to bring everybody to the table. Do you just mean uh, uh, members of the, the other party or are there other players that you would like to include?
1: Absolutely. So you guys know this. So when you look at the healthcare system, it is broad and it is immense. It's everything from small startup companies doing research into pharmaceuticals and therapeutics. It's big pharma, it's pharmacy managers, it's insurance companies, it's hospital, it's consumers. And at the end of the day, it should be all about the patient. And so, how do we have a thoughtful conversation that says to everyone who's involved, "What's it going to take to drive down prices?" I think that's the conversation we have to have if we're literally going to get something passed. I will and just,
0: again, yeah, I, I will just play devil's advocate and say yeah. it seems that the, you know uh, people who have a place at the table, like big pharma, may not have that end goal in mind.
1: Well, they have a choice; they can be at the table or they can be on the menu. And so, I think there's an opportunity here to have an honest conversation about what what's it going to take to drive down pharmaceutical prices and it's interesting too because you know you know this there's so many components to this there's so many different players in the entire chain of coming up with something and then getting it into getting getting it to a patient so let's talk about how we lower prices there are generics that are available and so let's just bring everyone to the table talk about the end game here the desired outcome of driving down prices as low as possible and making sure that yeah we're able to do research as well and to provide therapeutics for people who desperately need them i mean i've heard from people who have had chronic disease Um, they have they're caring for loved ones who have cancer you know and they say that without some of these pharmaceuticals they've their their loved ones wouldn't be here and so you know i am of the mind that i will listen and take information from everyone and let's find a way to get there together
0: Breck, as I mentioned, we had a question about electric rail. So Breck asks, we would like to see an expansion of electric rail service and the funding of the Amtrak Cascades Long Range Plan, which would create high-speed service between Vancouver, BC, uh, BC, and Portland. Federal infrastructure dollars would be required to build it out. As vice chair of the subcommittee on railroads, pipelines, and hazardous materials, what is your position on electrifying the Cascades line and fully funding the Cascades Long Range Plan?
1: I believe that when we look at train transportation, it is a big opportunity to electrify and do what we can. And I wanna share with you another project that I've been involved in. It's called the Cascadia Corridor Ultra High-Speed Rail Project. So it's not a, it's not an Amtrak project, which I do support, but there is a desire working with British Columbia, the state of Washington, and the state of Oregon to create an ultra high-speed rail line that goes through all three areas traveling up to speeds of 250 miles an hour electrified. And it would cost less to build that out about $54 billion than it would cost to add one lane of I-5 going in each direction. So as we talk about electrifying rail, I'm a big supporter of that. Um, The electrifying Amtrak I think is fantastic, and I think it's not an either-or scenario. We need local regional light rail. We need commuter rail. We need ultra-high-speed rail that crosses national boundaries and state boundaries, and we can improve Amtrak as well. So I'm a supporter of all of that, but of course the question becomes – you know, some of the um, criticism that I've heard from members of the Republican Party about investing in Amtrak or even in high-speed rail is they point to California and they point to Texas as examples of what not to do. And so the one thing that I would say about the Cascadia Project, which is good, is that you could kind of learn from other people's mistakes and figure out how we get it done. And what's good about the Cascadia Project is that IT INVOLVES ANOTHER COUNTRY, TWO STATES, AND THERE'S A LOT OF PRIVATE SECTOR SUPPORT FOR IT AS WELL. SO I SUPPORT THE AMTRAK ELECTRIFICATION. I THINK THAT ELECTRIFYING OUR TRANSPORTATION IS REALLY ONE BIG WAY FOR US TO TAKE A BITE OUT OF CARBON EMISSIONS. BUT, AGAIN, LET'S JUST THINK HOLISTICALLY IN HOW WE SAY YES, YES AND, NOT EITHER OR.
0: Lisa has a question about the Deschutes dam removal. She says, after okay. 20 plus years, we are in a place where the Capitol Lake and Deschutes River estuary can be restored. I'm sure you support this. What is the possibility of accessing infrastructure and other federal funds for the dam removal and recovery?
1: So in the United States, when we deal with infrastructure, we take a really long time to do everything. <laughs> there are many steps. And so first and foremost, this project has to get on the Washington State Transportation List. And then once it's there and there's a study about what the cost will be and what the alternatives are the federal government can come in and assist as well and so you know as a member of congress as a person who's an infrastructure geek i am absolutely willing and ready to make investments in the 10th congressional district and in washington state to upgrade and update and i know that the olympia city council unanimously supported this and so let's do what we can to make it happen but the first step is to get it on the menu for washington state department of transportation
0: Great. Um, some. Uh, this is an anonymous question. It uh, says it is okay. my. It is my understanding there is a committee, and this actually goes back to the bipartisan infrastructure package. It is my okay. understanding that there is a committee of individual, individual, individuals. <laughs> I say indivisible so often that I trip I know, over right? the word. <laughs> so there is a committee of individuals in the South Sound helping to advise on where the bipartisan infrastructure fund should go. Uh, who is on that committee?
1: I do not know.
0: Hmm.
1: So there's a South Sound Advisory Committee determining where the bipartisan infrastructure money should go. Or uh, are, are, are you talk, Are we talking about the the rebranded earmarks, the community directed spending for different projects? Because there's a committee that I form for people to submit requests for earmark okay, for community directed spending, and we've received a lot of applications, and there were about eight or ten that made the list.
0: Okay, Is that
1: that the question?
0: I believe so. It's anonymous. So I don't have anybody to follow up with. So (laughs) can can you talk about the players uh, who are involved with that?
1: Yeah. So um, what we did was so in Congress this year, under the leadership of um, Chair Delora, we decided to bring back earmarks. And you know that earmarks went away because they became kind of controversial and it kind of looked like people were just hooking up their homies for lack of a better discussion. (laughs) So we created a system that was transparent. It had to be community benefit and it could not benefit a private company. And so we had submissions from different cities for different projects, and we were able in transportation infrastructure to get quite a few projects funded in on my list. And so let me tell you what they are. And, and the makeup of this group here it consists of folks from Olympia, I'm um, included someone from the State Labor Council It included someone who is um, – works in financial services, but just a nice cross-section of people representing different sectors to evaluate these applications and then make a recommendation to me about what we should fund. So this is the Invest in America Act. and. Our member designated projects were 5.6 million dollars to strengthen neighborhoods and connectivity in east tacoma um, it was to improve accessibility to connect neighborhoods and an international business district in lakewood it was six million dollars to strengthen an economic development corridor in Lacey. it was 3.25 million dollars hold down this is sexy to build a roundabout IN TUMWATER AND THEN $2.75 MILLION IN FIPE TO RESTORE A TRAIL SYSTEM AND SO WE RECEIVED QUITE A FEW APPLICATIONS AND SUBMISSIONS BUT THE COMMITTEE CAME BACK AND RECOMMENDED THESE AND LUCKILY WE ACTUALLY GOT MORE FUNDED THAN WE IMAGINED SO IT WAS A NICE WAY FOR US TO SHOW LOCAL COMMUNITIES THAT THEIR PROJECTS ARE IMPORTANT Um, WE ARE FUNDING A youth SHELTER IN SHELTON WE ARE FUNDING um, A PROGRAM IN Spanaway, WASHINGTON THAT HELPS PEOPLE GET INTO MEDICAL RECORDS AND SO JUST WAYS TO FUND DIFFERENT PROJECTS TO address infrastructure, but also you know help get things built that are going to benefit the community at
0: large. Great. I'll just add, I love roundabouts. Um, so, <laughs> uh, uh, Olympia Indivisible asks, the IRS code has a depletion allowance for industries that extract uh, coal and gas. It basically subsidizes the pollution of our environment. Would you support the elimination of the code's depletion allowance?
1: Well, I'm definitely willing to look at it, and I think the question always becomes, you know, when we talk about these things that are subsidized, what's the impact on the local communities and what's our general goal overall? And so I definitely will look into it and, you know, take take a very, very strong look at, you know, what it is we need to do. And, you know, when we think about things that deplete, I still come back to the conversation about what? options do we have as consumers to do something else, to use something else? And one of the things I've learned in Congress is that you know here in Washington State, we have a very deep blue liberal ethos, and when I meet with some people who come from other parts of the country, they have a very different perspective. And so we want to make sure that we're doing something that doesn't jeopardize people's livelihood, but also provides an alternative. Okay, if I can't do this, then what, what can I do next?
0: Well, yeah, and I think the, the, the transition is, is, what's, is what's key here, and actually, yeah. uh, related to that, Fran Slayton has a question. Uh, Will you commit to ending subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, including natural gas, and indefinitely blocking all new fossil fuel projects, including those directly impacting BIPOC communities disproportionately, like Line 3, Line 5, and KXL?
1: So you know, again, I will take a look at all of these different types of project and ask myself, what is the overall impact? And we do know that when it comes to climate change, there is a disproportionate impact on communities of color and communities that are low-income, often where things are cited. And so again, I will take a look at these things and do a very, very thoughtful dive about what needs to happen. And as far as the conversation about subsidies, we subsidize a lot of things in this country. What we need to do is subsidize clean energy, AND THINK ABOUT HOW WE'RE GOING TO MOVE TO A CARBON-FREE FUTURE. SO I CAN DEFINITELY CONSIDER SUPPORTING THAT, BUT I ALSO, AGAIN, ALWAYS WANT TO SAY, WHAT IS GOING TO BE THE IMPACT ON A LOCAL COMMUNITY WHEN YOU DO SOMETHING LIKE THAT? AND IF WE'RE SAYING TO SOMEONE, OKAY, YOU'RE NOT GOING TO BE ABLE TO DO THIS, THEN WHAT ARE THEY GOING TO DO INSTEAD, AND HOW IS THAT GOING TO AFFECT PEOPLE WHO MAY WORK IN THAT INDUSTRY NOW? HOW IS THERE A JUST TRANSITION TO ANOTHER JOB THAT PAYS WELL THAT'S GOING TO ALLOW SOMEONE TO MAINTAIN THEIR livelihood?
0: Uh, Fran is uh, part of the audience uh, here today, and so I would imagine she would like a follow-up. If uh, uh, Dante or other staff could follow up uh, with her with uh, once the, uh, the Congresswoman finds out more information about that, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, Kit Burns asks, President Biden has incrementally eliminated some of the student debt. Most repayment requirements have been frozen. Will you press him to eliminate all student debt? It is obvious uh, if uh, some can be eliminated and others pause all of it could be forgiven or paused forever. What is your position on this issue?
1: Um, My position on eliminating student debt is kind of mixed. On the one hand, you know, I recognize that the majority of people who live in the United States did not go to college. And so as a question of equity and fairness, how will they view doing this? I think the other thing that's important too is that, you know, there are people who have have student debt from predatory colleges who take advantage of specific populations. I definitely support that. I support the fact that, you know, some of the historically Black colleges and universities have decided to forgive student debt. And so I think it's really taking a scalpel and looking at... Where the debt is, how it affects different populations, and what we can do to make sure that eliminating that debt is equitable. But I will tell you that, you know, I've talked to people who've heard about the student debt thing, and someone has said to me, well, are you going to eliminate my mortgage debt, my credit card debt? And so I think in many ways, you know, we have to remember that a lot of people did not go to college and they don't have that kind of debt, but they may have other debt too. So just being thoughtful about it and strategic and looking at, again, how is it going to affect the greatest number of people and do the most good?
0: As I mentioned, we had a question about uh, white supremacy and extremism in the military. Uh, nearly one in five of the Capitol insurrectionists had ties to the military. How can the House Armed Services Committee address this?
1: Yeah, so um, we, uh, my, my colleague Anthony Brown, who serves on the House Armed Services Committee, and he um, is a graduate of Harvard Law School, and he is really leading the charge about how we identify extremism. And you know, we've had big debates in committee about what is a definition of extremism, and FOR ME, YOU KNOW, IT IS ACTIVITIES OR BELIEFS THAT WILL LEAD TO VIOLENCE. THAT that FOR ME IS A VERY IMPORTANT COMPONENT OF THIS, AND WE SAW THAT MANIFEST ITSELF in, ON JANUARY 6th. AND SO IT'S GETTING THAT DEFINITION OF WHAT WE MEAN BY EXTREMISM, AND THEN REALLY LOOKING AT, YOU KNOW, HOW LEADERS CAN IDENTIFY YOUNG PEOPLE WHO MAY BE FALLING prey TO THAT. YOU KNOW, I WAS TALKING TO SOMEONE THE OTHER DAY, A FRIEND OF MINE WHO WENT TO WEST POINT AND HE'S been IN THE MILITARY FOR A WHILE, AND HE SAYS THAT WE OFTEN FORGET THAT when people join the army for the first time they are young and impressionable and the president is the commander in chief and when you have a commander in chief that is spewing messages of hate intolerance and division that's tr- that trickles down into the organization so the good news is that we don't have a commander in chief spouting those messages the bad news however is that we want to make sure that you know we are identifying people early not judging them not by you know not taking away their first amendment rights but just making sure that we are being aware of folks who may be going in that direction, empowering supervisors and commanders to address it. But you know, understanding one thing, 1 percent of the U.S. population is in the military. It's a very small fraction of people. But what happened on January 6th is unacceptable. So we want to make sure that we're identifying those behaviors and doing what we can to curb them and to make sure that you know, people who have those extreme views that lead to violence are not serving in the
0: military. We have five minutes left, actually six minutes left. And so I wanted to get uh, just a couple more questions in here. Uh, Sharon Loder asks, how to get young people politically active? Uh, she says the gallery here, <laughs> I won't say what she said about the, the average age of people who are, are in the gallery here, but let's say they look kind of like me and, and this, this this age here. So we're, we're a little uh, long in the tooth. Uh, how do we get uh, younger people involved? You
1: know, I, I would say a few things. And I just I think about my journey is becoming politically active. You know, when I was in my teens and early 20s, politics were not top of mind for me. So really my late 20s is when I started becoming politically active after I came out of graduate school and attending historically black college and university. So I think a couple things have to happen. You know, there are lots of organizations that, you know, from legislative districts to, you know, to state parties, to county parties, and we have to make them places that people want to be part of. And I often say that because, you know, in, in any organization, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, and I don't just mean race, orientation, and ethnicity, I mean age and different perspectives and life experiences. And if someone shows up to something and they look around and they see who's there and they hear the dialogue and they don't come back, then you need to ask yourselves, we all need to ask ourselves, why did that person decide not to be part of this organization? What happened in that room? What did they see? How did they feel like they didn't belong or didn't have a voice that made them just say, this is not for me. So I think there's that. And I think also too, you know, I tell people that America needs two things, a history lesson and a civics lesson. And I think civics education should be part of fundamental education. I mean, it is so critical. And I've had the privilege of traveling To different places in the world and it is amazing to me how most folks that you meet on the street know more about the us than a lot of us do here at home yeah and so we need a civics lesson in history so i would say civics and civics in high school and middle school is important but just creating spaces where people feel welcome and they can see themselves i think that's a really important part of it
0: I really, I couldn't agree more. I really think a return to civics, uh, civics education is so important. And also, uh, I would highly recommend that young people read uh, People's History uh, by by Howard Zinn. I think that it's just such an eye-opening book. But that's just my little two cents there. I, I want to, uh, before we go, I just want to thank you for your work on gun control. You uh, co-sponsored both H.R. 8 and the Enhanced Background Act. Right now, this is an issue that has is largely gone to the back burner. Uh-huh. I, we... we <laughs> I sadly can anticipate that at some point it will come back to the front of the conversation here uh, in this country. What yeah. else do you think can be done on guns legislatively right now?
1: Well, I think there are two things. So what we're trying to deal with is gun violence. And the sad reality of gun violence is it's mostly perpetrated by men. It is often against intimate partners, often between people who know each other. There are more guns in this country than there are people. And so, for me, I think about the structural issue that there are too many guns and they're too easily accessible. You can go online and just buy any old gun, and they don't even ask you many questions. But also, to getting to the root of why people want to commit violence with guns, I think that is a part of this conversation that's missing. It's not legislation about gun control, which I fully support, actually, which the general public supports. Huge support for common sense background checks and gun legislation. But I also think it's important for us to get to the root causes of, you know, is there something going on with how we socialize men? Is toxic masculinity part of this conversation? Why is violence the way we solve problems? What's going on with some of these issues around behavioral health? And I think it has to be a 2 pronged approach. You know, my colleague Lucy McBath, who is from Georgia, you know, lost her son. And yeah. that's what got her into Congress. Her son was shot at a gas station. And so I, you know, I talked to her and she's like, you know, we have to keep this drum going. We have to keep it going. And so AGAIN, WE HAVE TO INCREASE OUR MAJORITY IN THE SENATE <laughs> SO THAT WHEN WE PASS SOMETHING IN THE HOUSE, IT DOESN'T GO TO THE GRAVEYARD AND it CAN GET TO THE PRESIDENT'S DESK. BUT I THINK GUN CONTROL, YES. COMMON SENSE GUN BACKGROUND CHECKS. I'M GOING TO USE a, THE RIGHT TERMINOLOGY HERE. BUT ALSO, to LOOKING AT THE ROOT CAUSES OF VIOLENCE. WHY DO PEOPLE RESORT TO THAT TYPE OF VIOLENCE TO SOLVE PROBLEMS? I THINK THAT IS SUCH AN ESSENTIAL PART OF THIS CONVERSATION. WHAT IS HAPPENING TO OUR YOUNG MEN? BECAUSE YOUNG MEN TEND TO BE THE ONES WHO COMMIT THE MOST gun VIOLENCE.
0: And indeed, on a practical level, with you know, there are some things that need to happen with the makeup of the Senate in order to actually pass things. As you say, um, you've mentioned this a couple times, and uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of warning signs about Democrats holding the House in twenty two. You are in a pretty safe district, so I would ask you, what sorts of things would you like to do to help other members who are in more vulnerable seats, like say, my member of Congress here in CD eight, Kim Schreier?
1: Yeah, so Kim Schreier is technically what you call a frontliner, which means that every two years that Republicans are spending tons of money against her, even even leading up to the election. But I also want to make sure that you understand so it's like my I don't consider my seat safe. And I say this because, you know, there is a partisan index that exists. So for every congressional seat, you are a plus something. I'm a D plus five. Derek Kilmer is a D plus six. Pramila Jayapal is like a D plus 30. AOC's, you know, so, so I think that those numbers are important to think about, Fair you enough. know, how safe someone is. So with that said, you know, I think it's important for us to be, again, strategic and intentional, and we have to be better with our messaging. Because here's the deal. The Republicans already have the table set. They're going to run on this. Democrats want to defund the police, open up our borders, and raise our taxes. The message has already been written. So what is our response to that? IT'S GETTING THINGS PASSED THAT AFFECT THE AMERICAN PEOPLE AND, AGAIN, RECLAIMING THAT MESSAGE THAT WE STAND FOR A NATION THAT IS SAFE, THAT IS JUST, AND THAT IS SECURE AND HOW ALL THOSE POLICIES FROM HOUSING TO TRANSPORTATION TO VOTING RIGHTS TO GUN CONTROL ALL FIT IN THAT RUBRIC. AND, AGAIN, CLIMATE CHANGE, SAFETY AND SECURITY.
0: We have to let you go right now. Um, I, I will note for people that you were on the Small Brewers Committee, which is such an exciting, an exciting thing. Uh, I didn't even know such a thing existed. So, when it is safe to do so, indivisibles in CD10 are wondering if you would commit to meeting them for a beer at your favorite microbrewery.
1: I would be delighted to do that. Excellent. And I am into pilsners these days. So that's a preference that I
0: have. I'm very into German beers myself these days. (laughs) Congresswoman Marilyn Strickland, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you again for all the work you do. We have to stay vigilant. We have to keep working every year. And thanks so much for everything you do.
0: Thank you again to Congresswoman Marilyn Strickland. Thanks also to Julian Jayevsky, Demita O'Dell, Breck Lebeg, Ann Hall, Joni Brill, Nina Musavi, Kevin Jones, Louise Pathé, Robin Gittleman, and Dante Payne. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and the email is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.